Welcome to Hire It Advisor, the Baker Tilly podcast dedicated to providing insightful guidance and leading practices for college, university, and research institution leaders and board members, experts and thought leaders in higher education finance, institutional operations, collegiate athletics and esports, health and wellness, data analytics, and more. Join our podcast host, higher education practice leader Dave Capitano, for bi-weekly episodes to discuss the latest news in higher education and the impact these trends and changes have on the industry. This is where you come to learn what's really going on behind the scenes at colleges and universities across the country. Hello, and welcome back to Higher Ed Advisor podcast series. I'm Dave Capitano, Baker Tilly's Higher Education Practice Leader and podcast host. In this episode, my colleague and resident fiscal resiliency specialist, Christine Smith, continues the conversation with community college thought leader, Lenore Rodicio. They further explore the changing landscape happening today in higher education as colleges and universities focus on meeting and supporting unique student needs. They discuss qualitative and quantitative strategies institutions can use as they work to achieve fiscal resiliency within the evolving industry due to COVID-19. Let's hear what Christine and Lenore have to say. Good afternoon, and again, thank you, Lenore, for graciously agreeing to participate in another podcast with the Baker Tilly team. We're really excited to continue the conversation and specifically today to focus on student success and what institutions should be thinking about. And so I just kind of want to start there, exploring that term, student success. It's a really often heard term within higher ed. And I know recently I've had some dialogue with a couple of people where they think it's a term that should not be used. And so I guess, given that you are somebody who has focused her entire career in the space of student success and are at the forefront of, of these efforts, can you say a little bit about the term student success, what does that mean to you and and should it be used? Thanks, Christine. It's so great to join all of you again today. So, you know, when I think about the term student success, it's not so much the term that's problematic as is its usage and how we define it in the institutional sector and across the post-secondary field. And I think that the challenge is that the definition of what student success is or what it should be is a constantly evolving definition. It's not something that is static and that we can define at any given point in time. It's continually in flux. And I think that there's a number of factors that come into play when we try to define student success. I think first and foremost, we have to apply an equity lens to student success. So when we throw out numbers like completion rates and retention rates, they paint a very broad stroke picture of how students are faring in a given institution or set of institutions. But those numbers tend to hide disparities that exist within that data. So whenever we talk about student success, I always like to add the term equitable at the front of it. So equitable student success. If we take those completion rates, if we take those retention rates and break it down by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, do we have the same level of success across all those subpopulations 
that we do for the majority or overall number of students. And I think that's where the debate is. Defining student success requires us to really look at what it means across a number of subpopulations of students. And I would even argue looking at the individual student. So that's, that's the first component of that. I think the second part of the definition then is what are we trying to attain in terms of student success? Is it just completion? Is it just retention? Is it just enrollment? Or is it something more? Are we looking for students to be successful not only at our institutions, but also in the employment that they attain once they graduate? And are we seeing equitable outcomes in those post-graduation outcomes? Are students even interested in a degree at this point in time? Or are they retooling and retraining and gaining some critical skills that they need in order to enter the workforce? I think there are a lot of different variations of what student success means to the individual student. And part of it requires the institution to work with the individual student to define that, as well as trying to define what it means in terms of having an equitable viewpoint across all subpopulations of students. That's very helpful. And it strikes me that historically, kind of the definition and the perspective of student success comes from the perspective of the institution and not necessarily, as you mentioned, each individual student. So it seems like that's that's a key thing for institutions to be thinking about. With that in mind, what are some of the critical steps that you think institutions really must take to stay on top of how they're performing relative to achieving student success and making specific decisions about what they're going to do, what they're going to prioritize, and how they're going to allocate resources? So I think the first thing that institutions need to keep in mind is that this is not a one-time deal or a one-time set of activities that they need to do that then will set them up for long-term success. When we're talking about student success and we're talking about the processes that help improve the experience for students at our campuses, we as institutional leaders need to see that this is a continuous improvement process. And it always begins with the data. Senior leaders at institutions need to make sure that they have at their fingertips the data that is going to help them identify what the symptoms are of the, the challenges that students are facing, where are they putting in services, practices, and policies that are supporting the students, and where are those practices and policies that are creating barriers to student success. And the only way that you can do that is by taking a deep look at the data, and not just looking at overall numbers, but really diving into the data for those subpopulations of students that matter most to your institution. So again, disaggregating that data by race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, and even other categories such as age. Are you looking at your direct from high school students or are you looking at your returning adult learners? Are these first generation college students? Are you looking at your students who are also parents or heads of household that have are trying to balance a number of other priorities in addition to, to coming to school? What's the employment status of your students? There is an infinite number of categories by which you can disaggregate the data, but by looking at who your students are and what are the big buckets that they fall into, can help you uh, establish that starting point for which of the subpopulations that you need to look at. And then really analyzing that data to see if there are trends 
Are there certain populations of students that are being left behind? And are there others that are being disproportionately successful? And what is happening that's allowing one group to be successful and the other not? And how can you create strategies that allow improvements across all of those populations? So I heard kind of two things in, in your response. And one was the just really the a deep understanding of what's happening and what the challenges and the issues might be. And then the second thing I think I heard you say was agility, right? The agility to be able to shift and navigate based on who the student is, what the circumstances, et cetera. Just curious, you know, I think the sort of poster child for agility, right, has been this COVID, this continuing COVID situation. And so can, can you say a little bit about what you've seen institutions do and how they've maybe pivoted to address some of the specific student needs and the individualized student needs within COVID? And then what, what might you see, I guess the second part of the question is, what do you see that doing then long-term for making institutions more agile as it relates to student needs and student supports and success? I think one of the things that COVID has taught us is that institutions can be a lot more nimble than we thought that they were historically. Um, you know, everybody's talking about getting into this post-COVID world and, and getting back to normal. But I hope that in that return to, to some sense of normalcy that we don't lose some of that agility and nimbleness that we did see during the pandemic. I think what institutions have been really good at during the pandemic is finding different delivery models depending on where the student is. So initially, everybody was home, everybody had to be remote. And so institutions had to figure out how to offer all of their services, not just classes, but advisement, counseling, financial aid. They had to figure out how to offer those in a remote format. Now that most campuses are open, but there's this sort of hybrid situation that's going on where some students are on campus, some are still hesitant to come back. Institutions are also starting to shift those services to hybrid models. And the question is, how do you balance those both? And how do you determine which services are most suited for the population of students that you are attempting to serve? And that, again, it goes back to the data looking at the data, where and how are students accessing services, uh, what students are doing well with remote versus not, are there additional supports that we can put into place to help support the students in whatever modality they're receiving the services. So I think what we've seen across the institutions is they've been able to provide services in this variety of formats. The next step now as we do start to return to at least the new normal, is to begin to look at the data for how students are performing in these new environments, and then figuring out what modifications, adjustments, or new practices we need to put into place to help continue to support them. And I'm assuming, given that it is a very fiscally constrained environment for many of the institutions out there, that that data and kind of the impact will really help them to prioritize where they put their specific dollars um, towards student success initiatives. Because I know in working with institutions, we have found 
everybody has their favorite high impact practice they want to employ that they are convinced is going to be the, the thing that really helps for those students. So I think your advisement around data driven, really, you know, look at the impacts to, to be able to guide your way is really critical. Kind of shifting gears, I recently heard somebody looking at the you know, higher ed and higher ed strategy and, and setting different strategy relative to the competitive lens, thinking about it a little bit more as businesses sort of dissect the competitive landscape. And they made the comment that student is both the consumer and the end product, which I thought is interesting. And they said it's you know one of the few industries in which that, that occurs. What's your reaction to that? And, and what specifically does that mean to you as, as institutions are navigating an extremely competitive environment? That's such a, an interesting comparison of, of seeing the student as both the consumer and the end product. And in many ways, it's true. And I think when you look at the life cycle of a student, you see them as consumer and or as end product, depending on what it is that, that you're attempting to do at the institution. But the one thing that I would argue back, though, is that in terms of looking at students as end products, we also have to remember that they're not widgets. They are individuals, they are people, they are human beings who, in addition to being students in our higher education system, are actual individuals, citizens, family members that have a whole other slew of things going on in their life that is going to affect how and when they get to that end product. But in sort of sticking to this analogy, though, higher education institutions right now are facing some pretty dire fiscal straits. Enrollments are down. Um, there was just a report released today that the, the number of students that enrolled in institutions this past fall plummeted to even larger depths than what we were anticipating. That's gonna be a challenge to get those students back. And so in that sense, higher education institutions do need to start looking at what are these consumers looking for when they do select a post-secondary institution? How do we communicate our market value or our value proposition to them? How do we show them that this is a worthwhile endeavor, that they want to spend their limited resources on us? What are we going to provide them that's going to make their lives better? that's going to turn around their, their family situations, that's going to help them find better employment, right? How do we communicate that value proposition to them, right, to get them in the door? Then how do we retain them? We want them to be return customers, right? We want them to keep coming back semester after semester until they graduate. So we have to figure out those support processes, the wraparound services, the financial support and scholarship aid and other supports that students are going to need to be able to stay in school. And then as, as we retain them and start shifting to thinking about them as these end products or thinking about what's the next step, we need to think about the supports we put in place to help them be academically successful to help them graduate and to help them place into careers that are gonna have an impact on their long-term socioeconomic mobility for themselves as well as for their families and their communities. So while I'm hesitant to compare students to, to widgets and products, I do think that in the sense of structuring for fiscal sustainability, it's a good way to sort of lay out the, the life cycle of a student from consumer to this end product of a successful graduate 
who attains meaningful employment as a way of being able to map out the processes that institutions need to put in behind the scenes. And as you kind of think about that, that, you know, that perspective of the entire student life cycle continuum, and you think about the mantra of sort of whole student, their terms, not ours, what, if anything, are you seeing as being the biggest changes that institutions are making and how they address, how they organize around, how they redesign processes relative to enhanced student success? So, you know, in the work that I've been doing with Aspen and Achieving the Dream and um, in my role in the Association of American Colleges and Universities, I think one of the things that we have been seeing is a true shift in mentality at institutions from asking the question, are students ready for college? And instead asking the question, are colleges ready for students? And that has been, I think, the most significant shift in the mindset of institutional leaders in the past few years. And I think that's the one that's going to make all of the difference, right? It's not asking, are the students able to sink or swim in our environment? But what are the processes that we have put into, in place to put out life jackets for these students when they are sinking, to help them navigate our processes, to ensure that we haven't put any artificial barriers in place that are keeping them from being successful simply because it's, it's a policy or process that we've had since the beginning of time at our institutions. So I think that shift in mindset from the college-ready student to the student-ready college, that really has been, I think, the most important shift. And that's the one that's going to allow institutions to really rethink and transform the way that they do business to better support students. Yeah, I to totally agree. We're starting to see some of that, too, almost like a, your guarantee, your warranty, your what are, what are we going to do to contract with that student, you know, in terms of what we're going to do on their behalf. Great shift. What do you think in terms of that shift in mentality, that shift in culture, that shift in how things are done? What, what role, if any, do you think mergers, collaborations, shared services should play or are playing in realigning resources to meet those needs? So the mergers are, are a challenge, right? Because it means that one of the institutions at least was not viable enough in and of its own. And, and it's sad to see institutions that have had a long history of serving their community end up being subsumed into other institutions or organizations. But I think collaborations in particular can be incredibly helpful to institutions that are trying to drive forward the student success reforms and transformation initiatives at their on their campuses. And when we think about collaborations, a lot of times we think about interinstitutional collaborations, and those are critically important. But there are also community collaborations that are just as important in order to reconfigure campuses to better support students and to be able to make better use of resources. Let me talk about the institutional collaborations first, but then I want to come back to those community collaborations. I think in particular, two-year and four-year collaborations are essential. 
Number one, um, in order to ensure that students starting out at community colleges are able to successfully transfer to four-year institutions, you need to have that constant communication between those partners to align curriculum, to align course competencies, to ensure you have that interfaculty dialogue to make sure that what students are learning at the two-year space is truly preparing them to be successful in the four-year space. There are some fiscal benefits as well to some of these collaborations, um, things like shared advisors, bridge advisors, so advisors that perhaps are on the payroll of the four-year institution, but sit on the community college campus and provide advisement to the community college students on curricular maps and pathways and how to successfully transfer. Started to see some collaborations in terms of sharing data platforms um, across institutions to be able to better um, streamline the transfer of credit process. Those are some interesting collaborations as well. There are also ways to share faculty across the, the institutions, uh, creating some of these um, dual degree programs across the community colleges and the four-year institution, you know, things like two, three plus one degrees, or even looking into graduate studies for the community colleges that are starting to offer baccalaureate degrees. There are a number of different collaborations that can really help bring additional resources on campus that you didn't have before. Shared space arrangements as well are, are becoming more popular. That's one piece. But the community collaborations are important as well. And here, looking at things like training students for healthcare careers and how you create a pipeline of students from the hospitals who are trying to upskill some of their employees, creating enrollments at your institution, graduating more students in the nursing fields and others, and sending them back out into the workforce. That's one that is a, a mutually beneficial relationship that helps to drive enrollment at the institution. But in addition to that, partnering with community organizations that can bring support services to your students. I think one of the things that we fall into the trap of at institutions is trying to be all things to all students, and it's simply impossible. So if you don't have housing on campus, what are those community organizations that can help you identify affordable housing for students? If you cannot provide transportation yourself, what are those community organizations that have transportation resources available? The same applies for childcare. If you can't provide childcare services on your campus, who are those community partners that can help you identify and provide affordable childcare for your students while they're enrolled? So all of these collaborations can really help, number one, bring those wraparound support services that are so needed to the students, but also alleviate some of the financial strain that colleges see, um, especially during these, these times that we're, we're in right now. Extremely insightful viewpoint on collaborations in total and sort of the depth and the comprehensiveness that, that they need to be thought in. And I think, too, you know, in addition to what you said in terms of the benefit to the student in terms of support, I mean, I think what we're seeing, too, is that there's a lot of accelerated degree opportunities, dual credit opportunities that then directly impact the cost to the student, which is affordability number one issue in higher ed right now. So. Thank you for those comments. That was phenomenal. If you had one piece of advice for institutions who are trying to refocus their effort toward ensuring student success, what would that be? Listen to your students. 
A lot of times we're so hyper-focused on the quantitative data and the numbers that we don't take the time to listen to our students. And who better to tell us what they need and what is or isn't working for them than the students. So to the extent possible that institutions can start to bring in um, institutional research officers that have some of that qualitative mindset that can organize focus groups of students, that's gonna be critically important. Bringing in the student voice into the design thinking at the institutions. And if we are going to overcome this enrollment crisis and really bring our students back in, we're going to have to listen to what it is that they need to be able to support them effectively. Excellent. E extremely valuable point made. And I think that balance between the quantitative and the qualitative is, as you said, something that often gets lost and is very much an art and not a science and a, and a very important one. I think it was excellent conversation. Thank you both for that dialogue. Christine, you mentioned affordability, and, and I think that's a conversation in and of itself. And it brings me to a recent report that was just launched about uh, the viewpoint that high school students have on their ability to actually afford college. And if they already make the decision they can't afford it, they never even pursue it. And that's just, how do we get to that level of the conversation? And maybe, Lenore, you're already doing that. Maybe you're already trying to help educate that high school student. I think that's a conversation in and of itself. I was actually having this conversation yesterday with some college leaders around um, the, the mindset of students that college is not affordable. And I was making the case to them that we need to do a better job in the way that we present the affordability, especially of community colleges. What are the what is the financial aid package that a student receives, right? Even if it's just Pell, how much of the tuition and fees will they cover? And then how much additional will you get back for living expenses for books and course fees and, and things of that nature? I think students often overlook that because most financial aid packages are arranged not just on tuition and fees, but cost of attendance, right? And so students can stack scholarships, they can stack financial aid up to that cost of attendance, which typically includes things like housing and food and transportation. And so a lot of times students think, oh yeah, you know, my, my financial aid might cover tuition and fees, but then what am I gonna live off of? And I think you know it's it's a combination of that financial aid package. What do, what are the scholarships, and and how do we explain that to the students so that they can see the numbers and sense they're not going to be able to do it on their own, especially if they're first generation students because they don't have folks that can mentor them on on how to do that kind of financial you know analysis of of the pros and cons of enrolling and the different types of financial aid available to them and i think that that's one place where uh, community college leaders can really rally around and and try and present what that looks like to the student well and i wonder too lenore to your point about the community collaborations and the collaborations with you know the, specifically the employers i wonder too as the sort of path to a degree looks so different. It's not the traditional four-year, you come in, you come out, but it's kind of an in and an out and a little bit more um, seamless entry and exit. I wonder if there's going to be more need for employers, maybe even to play part of a role in that education of how you pay for this, how you can sequence it to fit your needs. That's right. What are the employer benefits that are available to you if you are working in order to, to support your tuition and fees? 
and even paid internships or paid apprenticeships, those things as well help support students and are often overlooked as, as viable components of the financial aid package. I think a lot of times when students hear financial aid, their mind immediately goes to loans. They don't think of all of the other components of financial aid. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's such an exciting time for higher ed because I think people are really starting to think innovatively, creatively, differently about what the potential is and how, how to do things. I'm pumped. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. To receive notification when new episodes become available, please subscribe to Baker Tilly US wherever you get your podcasts.